John 16 will be in verses 4 through 15. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning as we gather together here, we proclaim, even now with those surrounding your throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to gather here and to worship you as your church. What a privilege to call you Father, to come boldly before you in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we proclaim now, even as we just sang, Christ is sufficient, and it is in Him and Him alone in which we come before You, our holy God. We come as sinners. We come as those who fall short, those who deserve death, and yet we come boldly in Christ alone because He is sufficient, and we come redeemed. Heavenly Father, even now as we turn our attention to the Word of God, may this not be a trivial matter. May we not approach this hour as we approach the rest of the week. Open our eyes to the power of your Word, to the greatness of our God as we come before you. May your Spirit work mightily through your Word in each and every one of our lives. Open our eyes to what we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. May you be honored in all that is said and done in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're traveling back in time a little bit. Last week, we took time to remember Jesus' death, to rejoice in the resurrection on Easter Sunday. This week, as we come to John 16, we're ste stepping back in time. We're backing up to the hour before Jesus' betrayal and Jesus' death. So as we come to this passage, Jesus is still teaching. He's preparing his disciples as they wind their way through the streets of Jerusalem. They're on their way to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus will be betrayed. It is most likely Thursday evening of the week of Passover. Judas has left to join the religious leaders and the soldiers as they make plans and they prepare to go and to arrest Jesus, to take him into custody. As Jesus informs his disciples of the coming Holy Spirit and of his departure here in, in, in John 16, he knows exactly what is going on. Jesus knows what lies before him in the coming hours, and yet he lovingly takes the time to prepare his disciples. In this passage, John 16, 4 to 15, Jesus once again turns his disciples, focused from his departure to the promised arrival of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. 
So this morning as we come to this passage, we'll see the advantage of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit. The advantage of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit. We start in John 16, 4, but these things I have told you, that when the times comes, you may remember that I told you of them. That's where we stopped two weeks ago as we finished in the middle of John 16, 4. Jesus, in that passage from, from the middle of John 15 into the beginning of John 16, if you remember, Jesus informs his disciples that persecution is coming. The world hated me. They will hate you. Don't be surprised. Know that it is coming. And he calls them to endure in the midst of it. As Todd mentioned, to abide in him. This week we pick up in the middle of verse 4. It's kind of an odd place to start in the middle of a verse. The reality is that the beginning of verse 4 kind of ends that section. And this morning, as we come to John 16, 4b, it's the beginning of a related thought, but a new thought. These things I told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you them. Now the end of verse 4, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. What we see here is that there is a change of circumstance that is coming Why is Jesus just now telling his disciples of this hate and of this promised persecution? Why is he waiting till right now, till the, the night before, he, the, the night of his arrest? This would have been a nice thing to know back in, in John 1 and 2 as he was calling his disciples. It would have been nice if he started with that. If you follow me, you will face persecution and hate, but come and follow me. But he doesn't do that. The reason, as Jesus explains here, is that there's a change that is taking place. These things I did not say to you, I did not tell you of this, because I was with you. You didn't need to know. There's a change that's taking place now that now makes it necessary for you to be aware of this and to be prepared. This change will turn the focus from Jesus onto his disciples. And that change is the very reality that Jesus' disciples have been struggling with through this entire conversation. The reality that Jesus is leaving. For all Jesus' ministry, the hate has been focused on him. Now that he is leaving... Those who hate Jesus will turn their attention, they will turn their hate, they will turn their efforts onto Jesus' followers. It seems like bad news. How can this be good? Why are you telling us this now? The reality is it is good because it is in God's plan. Notice, if you will, where Jesus is going. 
These things I did not say to you, the end of verse 4, at the beginning, because I was with you. But there's a change. Verse 5, but now I go away to him who sent me. I go away to him who sent me. He's going to the Father. He's already told his disciples this back in John 14, 1 to 2. He's going to prepare a place for them where his Father is, and he will come back for them. But it's important for them to understand here that Jesus is not being chased away. He reminds his disciples here that that his departure is not a sign of defeat. It is planned. It is purposeful. It is strategic. Jesus is not running from the world. He is going to the Father. Now I go away to him who sent me. It is purposeful. It is our plan. This is what this has been building up to this entire time. Don't see my departure as a defeat. Don't see my departure as a retreat. I'm not running away. God's plan is unfolding perfectly. And I am going to the Father. We see that there is a change in circumstance. Jesus is leaving. And there needs to be a change of disposition in the disciples. The disciples are failing to grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying because they are focusing on the wrong thing. And therefore, they're responding in the wrong way. Look what he says here in verse 5. Now I go away to him who sent me, but none of you ask me, where are you going? There's an implication there that you should be asking this question. You're responding in the wrong way. You're asking the wrong questions. But if you're paying attention, that might strike you as an odd thing to see, to, to say. Because Peter asks that exact question in John 13, 36. Thomas asks a very similar question in John 14, 5. So what is Jesus saying? Did he forget that they asked this question? Obviously, we know the answer is no. Jesus has not forgotten. But Jesus' point is not the words that they have said, but the heart behind those words. Both Peter and Thomas were not really concerned with where Jesus was going, but simply with the fact that he was leaving them. The Expositor's Bible Bible Commentary notes that there was little concern about Jesus' future. They were interested mainly in their own future. D.A. Carson helpfully illustrates it this way. A little boy, disappointed that his father is suddenly called away for an emergency meeting when both the boy and his dad had expected to go fishing together, says, Oh, Dad, where are you going? But he cares nothing at all to learn the destination. The question is a protest. The unspoken question is, why are you leaving me? That's what we see in the disciples. And Carson goes on to note, the disciples have been asking several questions of this sort. They've not really asked thoughtful questions about where Jesus is going and what it means for them. They've been too self-absorbed in their own loss. 
They've asked, where are you going? But in asking that, they're not really concerned about where Jesus is going. They're concerned about what that means for them. They're concerned about their loss. What are we going to do? And that's what we see here. Jesus is going on to to stress that their wrong focus has led to a wrong response. Jesus' words have caused their hearts to be filled with sorrow. Look what verse 6 says. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. You're not asking the right questions, and because of that, what I have said to you has caused you to react in sorrow. When in reality, they should be filled with joy and with hope. In fact, Jesus has already told them that. Back in John 14, verses 27 to 28, he said, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You've heard me say to you that I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. If you were asking the right questions, if you had the right focus, you would rejoice at what is going on you're asking the wrong questions and you have the wrong focus. The reality is what the disciples fail to understand is that Jesus' departure does not mean a bad thing for them. It is a good thing. And that's exactly what Jesus goes on to say. Why should they rejoice at Jesus' departure? Seems like an odd way to to react when someone you love is leaving. But look what he says. Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage. You can't see this, you can't comprehend this, because you have the wrong, you're asking the wrong questions, and you have the wrong focus, but really, I promise you, it is to your advantage. Regardless of your sorrow, the reality is that it is to your advantage that I go away. What a remarkable statement. Not only is it good that Jesus goes away because it is part of God's plan, but it is to the disciples' advantage. I go back here to an illustration I used a few weeks ago. Praise the Lord for how he's provided for our family. Through my ministry here, Krista has a, has a job at Starbucks, and, and the Lord has continually provided. And yet, most days, as I go to work, as Krista heads out the door to Starbucks, what do the kids ask? Why do you have to go to work? Why can't you stay and play with us? Why can't we play Legos? Why can't we jump on the trampoline? Why can't we play soccer? Why can't we do... Why do you have to leave? They want to play, but they fail to realize because of their limited perspective that it is because I go to work. It is because the Lord has provided Krista's job. It is because of those things that they can play. It is to their advantage that I go. To work. It is to their advantage. It is a good thing. 
Likewise, the disciples here fail to realize how it is to their advantage that Jesus leaves. But how can it be an advantage? What is the advantage of Jesus leaving? How can we possibly make it without you? Look what, he goes, what, what Jesus goes on to say in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come. It's the fourth time in the book of John that Jesus has referred to the Helper. I've come to understand this Helper is the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is the third time in this very conversation, stretching back to John 13, that Jesus has addressed the coming Spirit. In John, we've seen the Holy Spirit who brings life back in John 7, 37 to 39. In this very conversation, Jesus has told them, the Holy Spirit, he will abide with you forever in you. John 14, 16 to 17. As Jesus is the truth, so the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. John 14, 17. It is this Holy Spirit that will teach the disciples and bring to remembrance all that Jesus said to them. John 14, 26. It is this Spirit who will testify of Christ. John 15, 26. And He is sent by the Father at the Son's request. John 15, 26. He's been teaching this all along to them. The Spirit is coming, and it is to your advantage that He comes and that I go. The disciples don't realize this at the time. As Jesus talks about His departure, that includes His death, His resurrection, His ascension. All of which is not just to their immediate advantage, but to their eternal advantage. It is to your advantage that I die, that I rise again, and that I send to the Father, and that I send you the Spirit. It is in God's perfect plan that the Spirit will not be poured out until the Son has been glorified. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I am leaving. He is coming. And it is to your advantage. With Jesus' departure, their responsibility as disciples was changing. Mm -hmm. And so was their equipping. Mm -hmm. Know that it is to your advantage that the Spirit comes. The advantage of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, in John 16, 8 to 15, we see the role of the Holy Spirit. And as you work your way through this, he gives the role of the Holy Spirit in three specific uh, places. The role of the Holy Spirit in regard to the world, in regard to the disciples, and in regard to Jesus. The first thing we see is the role of the Holy Spirit in regard to the world. What is it exactly that this helper will do? Look what he says in verse 8. I will send this helper to you as I depart, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. 
of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. I am leaving. He is coming. And when he comes, he will judge, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's important for us here as we jump into this passage, to understand first the word convict. Convict can have one of two meanings. Convict can mean to pass judgment or to condemn. As a judge who sits on a seat and condemns, he passes down a conviction. It can also mean to convince or to prove. The role of the Holy Spirit here is not to pass down judgment on the world, but to convince the world of the truth. He's not sitting as a judge. He's working to convince them of the truth. There's three specific areas in which the Spirit shows the world to be wrong. He can convincing them of the truth regarding sin, regarding righteousness, and regarding judgment. First, know what it says. The Spirit will convict the world of sin. Of sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. As those who have believed, if you are here this morning and you've placed your faith in Christ alone, you understand the idea of being convicted by your sin, do you not? When I, as a believer, am convicted of my sin, I have come to agree with God. I understand the wickedness of my sin, and I am ashamed by it. Think back to, to that first moment as you placed your faith in Christ, and you realized how wicked you really were. In that moment, as you were convicted of the depth of your depravity. The Spirit, through Jesus' disciples specifically, and the church more broadly, will show the world their sin and call them to repentance, just as Jesus did during his earthly ministry. Notice what it says, because they do not believe in me. It is precisely because they do not believe in Jesus that they need to be convinced of the truth and shown the wickedness of their sinful works. They need to be convinced of their sin, convicted of their sin, because they don't believe me. And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit shows the sinfulness of the world. He calls them to repentance. He convicts them of sin. If you were here this morning in Christ, you've experienced that. You probably continue to experience it. The Spirit continues to work in you. The second, the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because Jesus is leaving. Now that might strike us odd, right? Righteousness is, is a good thing. How can you be convicted of righteousness? Well, think about it. When the world is convicted of sin, what is their response? They measure their conviction of sin against what they perceive to be righteousness. I know that I'm not perfect, but, but I'm not that bad. That person over there is worse. 
I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Look at the good that I have accomplished. But the witness of the Spirit through the Word of God and the testimony of the saints joins with Jesus to proclaim that you are that bad. Your righteousness is that empty. As Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. And the wages of sin, of every sin, Romans 6.23, is death. You are that bad. Sin is that big of a deal. The Spirit joins with the prophets to proclaim that even our, our best works, our perceived righteousness, are as filthy rags. Even the things that we do that we think are good, that we would hold up to God and say, say look what I've done, they're filthy rags. They're empty of righteousness. The Spirit convicts the world of righteousness by showing the shallowness and the emptiness of man-made righteousness. And notice the Spirit does this because Jesus is leaving. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Jesus was known for this, was he not? He was known for calling out the religious leaders. That righteousness that you're hiding behind, it is empty. It is pointless. And the Holy Spirit picks up right where Jesus left off. As Jesus called out the world, so the Holy Spirit will come and he will call out the world. He will show their sin, convict them. He will convict them of their empty righteousness. And third, he will convict the world of judgment. Because the world, the, the ruler of the world is judged. The world tries to push back against the conviction of sin. Well, I'm not that bad. They might try to push back against the conviction of righteousness. Well, well, my judgment surely is not that far off. Surely I can tell what is right and what is wrong, but the judgment of the world is that far off. And by example, Jesus puts here his judgment of the ruler of the world, his judgment, their judgment of him. It is their misjudgment and crucifixion of Jesus that shows just how perverted and corrupt their judgment is. In fact, last week, on Easter, we looked at Acts 2, at Peter's sermon, and what does Peter say? This Jesus that you crucified. He does this very thing as the Spirit comes upon him. He points out to the world just how perverted and corrupt their judgment is. The world is overcome by sin. Their righteousness is empty and their judgments are wrong. What hope is there? There's the Holy Spirit who comes and convicts them of these things, points it out to them. Essentially what Jesus is here teaching his disciples is that the Spirit will pick up right where Jesus finished. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not abandoning you. As I depart, the Spirit is coming and He will pick up right where I left off. In fact, that's what we're going to see in John 16, 12 to 15. 
Jesus and the Spirit are not at odds with one another. They work together in perfect harmony. There's a smooth transition from Jesus' ministry to the ministry of the Spirit. How comforting this must have been to the disciples as they they look at the task before them and they think, how in the world are we going to do this without Jesus? And Jesus tells them, the Spirit is coming. And He will work in you and He will work in the world. I am not abandoning you. I'm not done with you. In fact, you have, will have an advantage after I leave. Secondly, that's where he goes next in regard to the disciples in verses 12 to 13. Actually, John 16, 12 kind of parallels John 16, 4. Back where we started, Jesus says, I did not tell you this in the beginning. Why? Because you couldn't handle it. You weren't ready yet. The time had not come. But now that I'm departing, the time has come, and I'm going to tell you. And here in John 16, 12, he says basically the same thing. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There's much more that I would like to tell you, but you can't handle it. You're not ready. You wouldn't understand. You wouldn't be able to grasp it. He knows his own, he understands them, and he cares for them. But again, that sounds like bad news. You're you're telling us that that you're departing, and you're telling us that there's more that we need to know, but you can't can't tell us what it is. What what are we going to do? Look what he says. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. Jesus is leaving them, but he's not leaving them ill-equipped. What they need to know, these things, the Holy Spirit will reveal when they are ready. He is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit convicts the world of the truth. And he guides those who are Christ's in the truth. While it is generally true that the Spirit guides believers in the truth, the main focus in this passage is on these specific 11 disciples. In this hour, as they look ahead at what God is calling them to, what Jesus is telling them to to go and to do, He is comforting them with the fact that the Holy Spirit will guide you in this. It is these men who will lay the foundation of the church, oriented to Christ the cornerstone, It is these men who will establish the the theology of this new church through their teaching. It is these men that will take take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They will write scripture. And they will not be on their own in this monumental task. The spirit of truth will guide them. What comfort! I am leaving, but I am leaving you with an advantage. I'm not abandoning you. My spirit who will indwell you will fill you and guide you with the truth. There's much comfort in having a trusted guide. I remember when I was about uh, 8 to 10 years old, my parents one weekend decided to take us up into the mountains to go on a little whitewater 
rafting trip. And I remember I was excited, and we, we went up there, and I mean, you know, don't, when you hear white water, don't, don't get the idea that it was something crazy. It was, it was very minor. <laughs> Not a big deal at all. But I remember we get there, and, and there's these documents, these legal documents that we have to sign, and, and my parents are filling it all out, and I'm kind of looking over their shoulder, and I see on there this little thing that says, in case of death. And I'm thinking, what are we doing? I'm, I'm not ready to die. I've got my whole life ahead of me. And I remember I started freaking out, and I told my parents, I, 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 I don't, I don't want to do this. Maybe this isn't a good idea. Have you guys really thought through this? I mean, it says we could die. My parents tried to comfort me. No, I'm sure it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. They have to put that on these things. But it's there. It's possible. Has it happened before? And what comforted me was our guide. As he explained how many times he had done this. He knew the river. He'd never lost anybody. It wasn't, it wasn't really that big of a deal. See, my parents explained it to me, but, but they'd never done this before. He had done it before. He knew where we were going. He was a trusted guide, and that comforted me. I found comfort in his experience and in his qualification. What comfort there is in a, in a, in a good guide. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Yes, there's a big task that I'm calling you to but I am not abandoning you to that. I am giving you the Spirit who will guide you in all truth. He is leaving them with all that they need. In fact, look at verses 49 to 50. The Spirit does not speak of his own authority. It's the same thing that, or, or, it's the same thing that Jesus said in John 12, 49 to 50. The Spirit, verse 13, will not speak on his own authority. That's the exact same thing that Jesus said of himself back in John 12, 49 to 50. I don't speak on my own authority. The Spirit doesn't speak on his own authority. This shows the unity of the Trinity. As the disciples trust and love Jesus, they can trust the Spirit. His teaching will not contradict Jesus. He will not lead them in a different direction. He will tell you things to come. The Spirit will equip you for the present and He will prepare you for the future. In Christ, with the Spirit, Jesus' disciples are equipped for all that they need from the tomb into eternity. Just trust me. Finally, in regard to Jesus, verse 14 to 15, He will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Yeah, Carson notes that the Spirit will glorify the Son by fleshing out the implications of God's triumphant self-disclosure in the person and work of Jesus. The Spirit will declare Christ to his disciples. As Christ declares the Father, so the Spirit declares the Son. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not done with you. 
The Spirit is coming, and you will be given all that you need. There are many churches and denominations in our age that are misguided in their focus on the Holy Spirit. They long to hear from him. They long to see him. They, they build their teaching and their, their, their entire platform and their worship around him. Are they wrong in this desire? Not necessarily. But they are grossly imbalanced, and their imbalance often leads to compromised and dangerous theology. Should we rejoice in the Spirit? Yes. Should we worship the Spirit? Yes, He is God. Should we focus solely or even primarily on the Spirit? No. What does the Spirit, what, what does Jesus say? He will glorify me. The Spirit proclaims the Son. So to focus on the Spirit rightly is to follow His gaze to the Son. The Spirit of truth convicts the world. He guides the disciples and He will glorify the Son. Children are incredibly innocent and gullible. I've got four of them. Have you ever noticed, it's, it's always kind of funny when, when for a birthday or whatever, they get a $10 bill. You can pull out three $1 bills and say, hey, I'll give you these three $1. I don't do this, but I could. <laughs> I'll give you these three $1 bills for your one $10 bill. And they'd be all about it. Jack, three for one? Why not? They fail to realize what they actually have. They have no idea what they hold in their hands with one $10 bill. Brothers and sisters, don't make the same mistake as so many children. Know what you have in the Spirit. You are fully equipped with all that you need in the Spirit. In fact, we, trusting in Christ after the cross, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, have a clear advantage, even over those who lived in Jesus' day, even over the disciples who walked with him before the Spirit came. You have an advantage. You are extremely privileged because the Spirit indwells you. He guides you. He empowers you. He leads you. The deacons and I, on uh, our deacons' meetings, were working through a um, kind of a, de a devotional commentary by Wearsby. We're working through the book of Ephesians. And there was a story in our last deacons' meeting of William Randolph Hearst. He was a newspaper publisher. He invested a fortune collecting art from around the world. And one day, he read a description of some valuable items that, that he felt he just had to have. I, I have to have those. 
With his resources, he would be able to track them down. So he sent his agent all around the world to track them down, to find them so that he could possess those things that he had to have. After several months of searching, the agent returned with good news. He had found the items. Where were they? Mr. Hurst, they're in your warehouse. This man had been sent around the world to find these items, and the whole time, Mr. Hurst owned them himself. They were tucked away in the back of a warehouse somewhere. Brothers and sisters, know what you have in Christ. Know what you have in the indwelling Holy Spirit. Don't go looking outside of the Word of God or outside of all that God has given you to find some kind of revelation out there. You are fully equipped. Know what you have. So by way of application, simply this. Be encouraged and rejoice in the Spirit. That's my goal this morning in this passage. Be encouraged and rejoice in the Spirit. I don't know exactly what you're going through this morning. I don't know what the week ahead holds, but I know that if you are in Christ, you have hope. Look at the context of this passage. It's a context where Jesus has just promised them that that hate is coming, persecution is coming, and yet, even in the midst of that, know that you are fully equipped. He comforts his disciples with the promise of the Holy Spirit who will give them all that they need. So whatever life throws at you, God has given you more. Whatever comes along, you can endure. You have all that you need. The gospel will triumph. The kingdom is coming. Your hope is sure. So rejoice in the spirit who indwells you. Rejoice in the hope, the guarantee of your faith. Rejoice. Know what you have. And rejoice in the truth.